0: Chapter eight of A Water Biography by Robert C Leslie. This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Chapter eight floating of the rip van winkle does not seem inclined to do so but in course of time changes her mind her start jury-rigged in the evening for exmouth we join her there fitting out at exmouth windlass etc how we got the mast into her i am boarded by port officials "'who want to know a lot of things. "'They measure the RVW. "'We hoist a flag for our second-hand Tupman "'and sail late one evening for Dartmouth. "'Arriving there before daylight "'and turn into the harbour at daybreak. "'More fitting out at Dartmouth. "'Men's bunks, etc.' our cooking arrangements on board etc our swell companion at dartmouth number of souls on board r v w why not bodies trips up the dart to totness in dinghy baron and tupman's work on board late hours kept by dinghy Our commander-in-chief issues an order, Difficulties in carrying it out, Slack rigging, Out of water and coal, How overruled and obtained, An early start for Salcombe, An invisible entrance and buoys, Lovely scenery, Trip up to Kingsbridge, THE BREAD OF Salcombe, THE DOUBTFUL LOIN OF MUTTON OF THAT PLACE, AND WHAT BECAME OF IT. WE LOSE SOME BOTTLED STOUT. IT WAS PAST 6 P.M. ON THE 4TH OF JUNE, WHEN THE FIRST RIPPLE OF THE TIDE TOUCHED THE CRADLE OF THE YACHT, AND I SHALL NEVER FORGET, the curious expression on Baron's face as the tide rose round her bow as he looked out of the forecastle hatch with the news that the water was quite as high inside her as it was out, and how I sent in a hurry for the boat-builder while Baron and Conant handed bucket after bucket of salt water over her side the boat builder made light of the matter merely remarking that it wasn't no more than he expected and that she'd take up all right after a bit and so she did and about dusk was afloat off sidmouth and ready to sail under a jury rig of Conant's largest lug sail forward "'and her own mizzen aft. "'But during her short voyage that night to Exmouth, "'she required pumping out more than once "'before they anchored near Starcross in Exmouth Bight, "'after which she became as tight as a bottle. "'A few years later, my wife, three children, and I went on board. The RVW, however, wanted many things before she was really ready for sea. Her long mast lay on deck. She had no windlass or hawse-pipe fitted, the castings for these ordered at Topsham, having not been received before she left Sidmouth. My mate Tupman boarded her the morning she anchored at Exmouth, but finding that at last a week must elapse before we should be ready to sail begged as he had just been married to stay ashore honeymooning until wanted and as conant still remained on board busy with the rigging this was gladly granted the first thing of course was to get the windlass finished for without it we were tried by the nose for want of power to get our sheet-anchor this took three days i mean the windlass fittings after which i asked the skipper of a large collier brig lying near us to let me come alongside and hoist my mast into place by means of his main-yard which he very politely granted, stipulating only that his crew might receive something for any help given us. It did not take long to weigh anchor and warp alongside the old collier, or to sling our long spar to her yard arm and lower it into place, after which, in the able hands of Conanth the RVW soon assumed quite a rakish look, so much so, indeed, that we were soon afterwards boarded by a mysterious government official. I believe connected with the Board of Trade, who wanted to know many things about my craft which I did not know myself, such as what yacht club she belonged to and if to done what port she hailed from. Was she registered, and if so, what was her tonnage, etc.? The net result of which inquiries proved clearly that the RVW was in the eye of the law of all nations, an illegal floating body of suspicious character, WITH NO PAPERS OR DOCUMENTS TO IDENTIFY HER, OR GIVE HER A RIGHT TO ENTER OR LEAVE ANY PORT IN HER MAJESTY'S OR ANYBODY ELSE'S DOMINIONS. FEELING THE GRAVITY OF THE SITUATION, I HUMBLY inquired WHAT WOULD HAVE TO BE DONE AND PAID TO MAKE THE RVW AN HONEST CRAFT and was told that first she must be officially measured, and that to do this much of the shingle ballast would have to be moved, and that when the necessary dimensions were obtained, they would be sent to London, and in due course would be returned with the proper papers, etc., for which there would be a small fee of two shillings and six pence to pay. So far as I was personally concerned, I was quite satisfied with the tonnage of the RVW, and really did not want to know anything more about her than I did already. I knew that when I pulled her empty hull out of the coal yard it weighed about six tons she was as big a boat as I could make her for the money she cost, three hundred and fifteen pounds, which to say nothing of my time was more than I ought to have spent on her. As, however, the man seemed hard up for a job, and had evidently had rather a dull time of it lately, I said he might go ahead as soon as he liked, and hoped he would let me have the required papers with as little delay as possible the length of my stay in that port being uncertain our cabin carpet and flooring were therefore removed and Baron made excavations amongst the ballast in which the officials carried out their researches to discover the real capacity or displacement of the RVW. When it was all over, I asked the head official what it came to and was told that until the data obtained by him had been worked out in London he could not exactly say but thought she would register twenty tons some hundreds I never heard how many, though I believe this with the papers of the RVW may still be discovered by the curious in some dusty pigeonhole of the customs at Exmouth. In short, three days later we hoisted our only flag, a Union Jack, for Tupman to join us, and about nine the same evening, weighed anchor for Dartmouth. It was a lovely night with a nice breeze at west-northwest, or a little abaft our beam, as we stood across Torbay, past Berry Head, and by one in the morning we were off the Dartmouth Mewstone. This was the first time either tupman or i had handled the boat and as the wind was right out of harbour we lay on and off till daylight when as we tacked up the narrow harbour we were glad to find her very handy and quick in stays we brought up off the town near where the britannia naval cadet ship was afterwards moored Here we remained a fortnight with a carpenter on board part of the time, fitting what sailors call standing bed-places, or bunks, in the forecastle, for Baron and Tupman, who had so far slept on the side lockers. But as what landsmen call fresh air was to them a matter of less importance than what they termed snugness and comfort, these bunks were built close up under the deck beams and according to tupman's directions he having passed some years in a pilot cutter they were all boarded in except an opening in front just large enough to crawl in and out of when finished they gave great satisfaction and judging by the noise always required to rouse the watch below, sleep in these cupboards was of the soundest quality. Nothing on board the RVW would have pleased a modern yacht's skipper. Cooking was done in an old-fashioned portable deck galley in which Baron contrived to boil, bake, and fry, sometimes on deck forward, when the result was handed below through the cabin skylight. While at sea it was used in a corner of the cockpit aft, dinner being served from it through the cabin doors. We had also supplied ourselves at Exmouth with a large brown baking dish, decorated with cream-coloured spots like those in which the savoury sunday dinners of working-men are cooked and whenever we lay within reach of a baker's oven this dish freighted with a piece of beef or leg of mutton, flanked by potatoes, etc., and protected by a large tin dish cover, was taken ashore and brought off hot to us by Baron in the dinghy. In this way we secured, during our cruise, a large hot joint at least once a week. Moored close to us at Dartmouth was a very swell schooner yacht, and as Tupman and Baron watched her crew every morning polishing up her brasswork and rubbing down her glossy black sides with chamois leathers as they would the panels of a carriage, they rejoiced quietly in the absence of brass fittings and the rough tarred topsides of the RVW. AND I UNDERSTOOD ONE REASON WHY TWO SUCH GOOD MEN WERE CONTENTED WITH ME. NOT COUNTING THE PERISHABLE BEAST BUZZ, WE WERE, TO SPEAK NAUTICALLY, SEVEN SOULS ALL TOLD ON BOARD. THOUGH WHY SEAFARING PEOPLE SHOULD BE THUS SPIRITUALIZED HAS ALWAYS PUZZLED ME. No one calls railway or omnibus passengers souls. They are always persons, bodily filling places or seats. It might, however, often be well if people, especially passengers, could leave their bodies ashore when taking a voyage. Souls, we are taught, being so easily provided for in every way, while this would do away with that mortal dread of the sea so trying to some people no one in a storm fidgets about his soul it is his bothering body he always wants either to save himself or someone else to save alive for him and except in the case of a body too seasick to care I have observed that the greater the real or fancied danger at sea, the less people trouble about their souls. This is, however, a digression, and I must not pursue the question which I was led into by a little discussion between our mate and my wife during our first evening at sea, as to the comparative feeling of security by people afloat and ashore which he tried to prove was a mere matter of faith, or that we were as safe at sea as anywhere else, which looking upon seafarers merely as souls might hold good, but which I regret to say did not prevent my wife wanting to know where we were more than once during our first night at sea. Our stay at Dartmouth gave ample time for several voyages up the river to Totnes in the dinghy. The beauties of the dart were then not as well known as today, when every autumn the little harbor is so full of yachts that, as a sailor would say, there is not room to swing a cat among them. The dinghy had a lug sail and leaving Tupman and Baron to take care of themselves and the yacht, my wife and little girl, with the two boys, the dog Buzz, and I, as we paddled, sailed, or drifted up it, had this lovely river almost to ourselves, stopping to land here and there at tempting points and little bays for a ramble inland, and reaching Totnes about high water and dropping down again with the ebb toward evening to our small floating home at Dartmouth. And I think even my wife, with all her dislike of the sea, enjoyed these little excursions. The distance between Dartmouth and Totnes is rather under ten miles. BUT THE RIVER WINDS ROUND SO MANY PRETTY HEADLANDS THAT WITH THE TIDE THE VOYAGE NEVER SEEMED LONG. DURING OUR ABSENCE, TUTMAN AND BARON HAD NO BOAT TO LEAVE THE YACHT IN, AND HOW THEY PASSED THEIR TIME WAS A MYSTERY. BARON, AS STEWARD AND MAID OF ALL WORK, HAD MOST TO DO and seemed to spend much of his time scrubbing the floor of the cockpit aft while tupman perhaps was writing our official log or love letters forward to his new wife sailors however have always a knack of getting a friendly cast ashore but on our return after a late tea or supper there generally came a request TO TAKE THE BOAT AND GO INTO TOWN FOR SOMETHING OR OTHER, SO THAT OUR SEVEN SOULS WERE SELDOM ALL SETTLED ON BOARD FOR THE NIGHT UNTIL ELEVEN O'CLOCK. THE DOG BUZZ, PATTERING UP AND DOWN THE DECK ALONE AS ANCHOR WATCH, BEING THE LAST TO TURN (laughs) INTO HIS BED IN A SIDE LOCKER. Then the restless dinghy would often let us know when the tide turned or the wind shifted by rapping a double-knock alongside. As admiral of the fleet, my wife now issued an order that all future maneuvers on board the RVW at sea were to be conducted in daylight and fine weather and to make sure of carrying out this command under sail i had before leaving the port to closely note my aneroid and the sky for such meteorological warnings as in those benighted coneless days might there be hoisted while to ensure a daylight passage i always made an early start i had in fact like the skipper of a Chinese junk, to wait every voyage for a little private monsoon. My crew knew nothing of these arrangements, and when late one evening I told them that next morning at daylight I should sail for Salcombe, three difficulties were at once started by Tupman. First, our new rigging wanted setting up again secondly the water-cask was empty and thirdly we had no coal aboard i suggested the application of faith to our rigging for that short voyage and that he and baron must start at once in the dinghy for water and coal baron of course Saw no lions in the way, but it was past nine before he and Tupman went after the water and coal, and before they returned, I was in bed. We weighed anchor, or rather unmoored, for we had two down at four next morning, and as we ran out of the harbour, I asked whether they had got the coal and water. Yes, sir, said Baron. "'But that old coal-merchant didn't bless us last night. "'You see, sir, we was latish, and his yard was shut, "'so we had to find where he lived, "'and when I roused him out he looked out of the window, "'and I suppose he mistook me for a skipper of a steamer "'and asked how many ton I wanted. "'But when I said, "'A arf hundred would do for tonight,' and would he oblige us with a loan of a sack to carry them off in, his language before he banged his window down was awful. But I think it was the sack that vexed him more than the small order. Then, said I, you never got any coal after all. Yes, sir, we did. We borrowed some as we rode back off the skipper of a coal sloop. "'Baron appeared quite satisfied with this arrangement, "'and when I asked how we were to return or pay for them, "'merely said, "'Law, sir, don't trouble over that. "'I told the skipper how we was situated, "'and in such things one sailor is glad to help another, "'cause they never knows when they might want "'some little things themselves.' We ran past the start with a light northerly breeze early that morning, and soon after breakfast were luffing in round Prawl Point for the entrance of Salcombe Harbor. Tupman had been there before, and knowing it, stood on close under the land as though he meant to run ashore inside of Bolt Head and seeing no break or entrance among the rocky cliffs around us, I stepped into the cabin to consult the chart and channel pilot, and just came out with my head crammed with the bearings of various colored buoys, etc., to find we were off the mouth of the harbor with nothing like a buoy to be seen which was not surprising, as on consulting another part of the pilot book some days later, I discovered a note to the effect that these buoys no longer existed. Coming from the eastward round the start, the way into Salcombe is invisible, or shut in until you are almost at the entrance, which is not over a quarter mile wide but the water was so clear as we tacked in that we were able to stand on upon each short tack until we saw the seaweed on the rocks a few feet under our forefoot. Once inside, the water is deep with plenty of room and good anchorage. We were delighted with the splendid variety of rock and river scenes round us as we sailed up to the little town where we lay for many days in order to explore every nook and corner in the dinghy, our first trip being up to the picturesque old towns of Kingsbridge and Doddbrook. "'celebrated as being the birthplace "'of Dr. Wolcott or Peter Pindar, "'also as having been the place "'where the white ale of this district was first brewed. "'It was at Salcombe that we bought "'those large, round, flat loaves "'which kept sweet and fresh on board for days. "'Butcher's meat, on the other hand, was scarce.' and it was a salcombe loin of mutton that the day after it came on board the weather being close and electric was handed over to baron who feeling uncertain about it at once changed it with a passing fisherman for a piece of fresh skate Baron disliked waste, and I think it was on a hot day here that he expressed great regret at finding several exploded bottles of stout in one of our lockers, wishing, as he said, he had only known before what they were going to do. Canned meats, condensed milk, etc., were not common then which made housekeeping in a small yacht in out-of-the-way places not so easy as today. Our youngsters also were accustomed to plenty of new milk, and whenever possible one of the men landed with a large milk can, and in company with the two boys and the dog, Buzz, often walked a mile or two inland, Before getting it filled. End of chapter eight.